In the name of Jesus, Amen. Dear saints, there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He is the only God, the, the only true God. The God who created heaven and earth, the God who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. The God who calls, gathers, and enlightens the church by His Holy Gospel. There is no other God. Whoever doesn't have God as their God cannot be saved. This is what we and all Christians throughout the world from all time have confessed day in and day out. God is the God who creates, who redeems, who sanctifies, and this God is your God. So knowing that God is your God, this means that your life is not only designed by God, but also defined by Him. As a Christian, you live your life in two worlds, before the face of God and also before the face of this entire world. You stand simultaneously in both realities, in both realms or in both kingdoms. This means that you not only live your life in the sight of others, but also in the sight of God. And unlike your neighbors, God doesn't simply see your facade. He doesn't just see your best side. He doesn't merely see the things you do publicly. He sees your heart and your thoughts and your intentions, your motivations and your desires. God sees all things, even the things you hide, the things buried in your heart, the things that your neighbor can't see, things deep within your mind. And this God is here today, right now, in this very moment. You cannot see him or feel him or experience him. He is here and he sees you. And he sees you for who you really are. So how do you stand before him? When God looks at you and only you, what does he see? When God looks deep into your heart and your soul and your mind, what does he find? When he peers into your soul, into the history of your life, when he looks at the long list of desires you've had, do you think he's pleased? And are you pleased with yourself? Are you comfortable? Do you think that you can stand before God? Well, let me put it this way. If we were to play a video of your life here in front of the entire church, in front of the world, would you be comfortable with that? If we were to take a transcript of all the thoughts you've ever had, make copies for everyone, and read them out loud for everyone this morning, or say tomorrow morning we're going to do this at 9 a.m., would you sleep well tonight? If you were given a book listing, if we were given a book listing every intention, motivation, and desire that you've had for acting, and if after any action you do, somebody could flip the page and look it up and say, this is why you're doing this. This is what you think of me. This is what you said to me, about me. This is what you said behind my back. All of these things. Would you have the same appetite or would you have some knot in your stomach from the guilt and shame and anxiety of people finding out what's really inside of you? what you're really like, what you've done. So if you're honest, then the answer is that you would, in fact, like me, die from the shame and embarrassment. 
you would crumble under the stress and guilt of humiliation. And if you feel any guilt and shame simply for thinking that these thoughts and your heart could be seen by others, then this is indeed a sign that you're guilty. And for this, you should learn to fear God. Because even though your neighbor can't see these things, God can. So this very moment, this this feeling, this very thing has happened quite a bit in history. In today's gospel lesson, uh, sorry, in today's Old Testament lesson, we learn that it happened to Isaiah. When Isaiah went to the temple, he saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the entire temple. And above him stood the seraphim, that is the angels who had six wings. With two of their wings they covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now if the sinless angels are covering their face before the face of God, the angels who have no sin to confess, no shady past to hide, Do you think that you can face him or stand before him or look him in the eye? Then the angels cried out to one another, just as we do every single Sunday before the Lord's Supper. They sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of Sabaoth. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. And I hope you see now why we sing the Sanctus every single Sunday, every single divine service. Because if the angels sang it while they were in the presence of God, then we do the same. Because God is present. And while God was sitting upon his throne, while he revealed himself to Isaiah, the foundations of the entire earth shook, and the temple was filled with smoke when he spoke. And what was Isaiah's reaction to all of this? What did he say? Well, he didn't say, wow, you know, this is pretty neat. This is cool. I always wanted to see this, so I'm just going to sit back Uh, relax and drink my coffee while God shares a message, while he shares a few words here and there, while he motivates me and gives me some practical advice. No. He says, woe is me. I am lost. For I am a man of unclean, that is sinful lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean, that is sinful lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when Isaiah cries out, woe is me, I am lost. He's not just being poetic or kind or exaggerating or speaking hyperbolically. He's saying, I'm done. I'm destroyed. I'm dead. I am damned. I am literally going to die in this moment and burn in hell forever. That's what it means when he says these words, woe is me. And this is what Isaiah does. Notice what Isaiah doesn't do. He doesn't start to, uh, making an excuse for his sin or saying why he's, he's unclean, why, he come, why he's dwelling around these people who are unclean. He doesn't make light of it. He doesn't say that hell is way too harsh of a punishment for him to suffer. He doesn't point out other people's faults and sins and saying, look, but this person is worse than I am. And when he says that he comes from sinful people, he's not saying that to separate himself from them. He's saying it to include himself with them, to say, I am just like them. He's not bringing it up as an excuse for his sin or to diminish his sin. He's bringing it up as a confession of his sin. He doesn't make any excuse. He simply confesses. 
He confesses sin before the face of God, the same God whom the sinless angels hid their face from. Isaiah admits that he deserves to hide himself from God in hell forever. And this, dear saints, is the same reaction that all Christians should have. If you want to know how to repent, this is how you do it. When you stand before God, you don't make excuses for your sins. You don't give a reason for it. You don't try to explain it away, why you did what you did. You don't, you don't say why you didn't do what you should have done. You don't rationalize away your mistakes and your guilt and your words. You don't hide behind a feigned ignorance or pretend, that, uh, or pretend innocence of your evil thoughts and words and deeds. You don't point out other people's sins and wickedness. You don't point to all the seemingly good things that you've done that in reality lay before the throne of God like filthy rags. You don't get mad or angry or defensive when your sin and guilt is pointed out. You don't minimize your sin or diminish its severity. You confess it. You stand before God and you confess that you were brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin. You confess the sins that you've even forgot about, the sins that you cannot remember. You claim ownership and guilt for those also. You confess the sins that others have pointed out in you. You confess the sins that you've hidden from others. You confess the sins that make you happy. The sins that you thought you could get away with, the sins you did get away with in the sights of the world, the sins that you run back to day after day. You confess the sins from your youth, the sins in your old age. You confess the sins you did on accident, the ones you didn't mean to do, the ones you didn't intend. You claim them to be your own because no matter the reason, you still did them. You're still guilty. You confess the sins that you did on purpose, the sins that you wanted to commit, the sins that damaged your soul and killed your faith for a time, the sins that grieved the Holy Spirit. And you sincerely confess that you are nothing but a poor, miserable sinner who deserves both temporal and eternal punishment. That, dear saints, is how you confess. That is how you repent. And this is what marks you as a Christian. And what does God do with such a confession? What does he do to those who know the severity of their sin, who feel its guilt, who stand before him, who know their own condemnation, who know that sin is in their hearts and on their flesh and that there is no way out of it. There's no excuse or justification or reason. What does God do when those who stand before him say such a thing? He takes it all away. He takes it all away. He takes away their sin, their guilt, and their condemnation. Just as he did to Isaiah, who didn't hide his sin but confessed it. God sent his holy angel to take a burning coal from the altar and put it on Isaiah's lips, on his mouth. And while he did this, he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is so overwhelmingly beautiful. This should be a cause to rejoice forever. See, some see this as some sort of punishment for Isaiah. Some see this as God getting revenge or making him pay for what he's done. But that's not true. 
It's not that this coal took away sin. It's uh, it, as, as if there was some property in and of itself. It's not as if Isaiah's lips had to be burned off or destroyed for him to be forgiven. Isaiah was forgiven by the word that was spoken, the message that was spoken, that the guilt is taken away, the sin atoned for. And the coal that burned his lips shows that God was taking away the very thing that Isaiah confessed to be full of sin. He confessed that his lips were sinful. And those sinful lips were taken away. The guilt he had was burned up. The sin he committed was atoned for. It wasn't Isaiah's repentance that moved God to do this. He only said a few words. Even the best confession in the world can't earn God's forgiveness. Rather, God forgave Isaiah because he wanted to. Because he desires to. Because he loved Isaiah through his son. The reason God forgave Isaiah was because he knew that Christ would die for all of his sins. In fact, Christ was the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. And it's this Christ who earned Isaiah's forgiveness. And this Christ who was burned up in the heat of God's wrath and anger on the cross. This is Christ who was lost, damned, and destroyed for the sins of the world. This is Christ who bore our shame and sin and guilt and woe in his flesh to take it all away. This is the God Isaiah has, the God who forgives sin. And this God is your God. When you stand before God and sincerely confess your sin, when you know there's no way out, when you repent of your thoughts, your words, your deeds and desires, whatever you admit and acknowledge before him, he will forgive. And that's the God you have. God takes away your sin by burning it up in the death of Christ. When you confess the sins of your entire life, remember that God already burned up all of those sins out of existence when he covered you in the water from this font. When you remember your sin, don't defend it. Confess it and hear the word that your sins are like ashes before his throne. When you confess the sinfulness and guiltiness of your lying, deceiving, adulterous, murderous, hateful, gossiping, slanderous, unclean lips. Hear that God sends his angel, his messenger, his own pastor to take what God puts on the altar and to put it on your lips. To take the very body and blood of Christ and place it in your mouth to take away your guilt. To give you the atonement for your sins that Christ won on the cross. So confess your sin. Yes, confession hurts. Yes, it's embarrassing. Yes, it feels horrible to be called out for the sins that you've committed. Yes, it's shameful to bear the guilt of your own evil words and deeds. But confess your sin knowing that the only reason God wants you to, wants to point out your sin is so that he could take it away. The only reason he wants you to point out your wickedness is so that he could forgive it. So he could separate it as far from you as far as the east is from the west. So men, learn this for yourselves. And husbands, teach this to your wives. And fathers, instill this in your children. There's nothing better that a father can do than to teach his children how to repent in word and deed. Be an example of repentance to them. 
Don't be fooled. The greatest thing a father can do for his child is bring them to church and to teach them to receive forgiveness from the same God who forgives you all of your sins. To place them back in the arms of the loving father who will never leave them or forsake them. So listen up. You have a God who actually wants to forgive your sins. You have a God who doesn't want to hold a grudge against you. You have a God who doesn't want to condemn you, who doesn't desire the death of anyone, the death of the wicked. You have a God who desires nothing more than to burn away your sin through the death and resurrection of his dear son, a God who indeed already has. You believe this to be true when you confess your sin. You have a God who would rather suffer the consequence for your wickedness than let you taste an ounce of it for yourself. You have a God who wants to forgive your sin, a God who desires nothing more than to bless you with everlasting life. A God who wants to spend every waking moment of eternity with you. So on that last day when Christ comes to judge the world, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, how are you going to stand before him? When this earth and everything in it are taken away, When it evaporates, when your reasons and your excuses and your fancy explanations crumble to pieces and turn to dust, how are you going to stand in that judgment? How are you going to make it through? When you stand before him with bare, uh, completely bare, with the thoughts of your heart exposed and your every thought, intention, and desire revealed, what is he going to say? When your reputation and finances and intentions and ideas, opinions and works and fame are taken away and turned to dust, how are you going to stand? But when God takes these things away, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because you won't need them. And you won't need any of it because you'll have Christ. And you will have his righteousness to clothe you. You'll have his holy and precious blood covering every evil thought and mistake and sin and desire, hiding them forever from the eyes of your Father in heaven. You will have his nail-pierced hands hiding you from the judgment and eternal condemnation that you once deserved, but you deserve no more. And you will have all of his works, all of his words, all of his love and his heart and his joy and all of this imputed to you all of your works cleansed and perfected through faith in Christ. And he will judge you the same way on that day as he judges you and he judged you this morning when you confessed your sin. Forgiven and holy and blameless and innocent and righteous without a spot or blemish in his sight. You'll stand before that throne with no guilt or sin. With no guilt or sin ever to come back into your flesh. Because Christ has atoned for it all. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.